Well, church, last week after our Tola and Jair interlude, our curtain is going to lift today in Judges chapter 10 and verse 6 to reveal a new act in the drama of God's dealings with His people, a new act, but sadly, as will become clear shortly, one that follows the same old script. And so, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them with me to Judges chapter 10 and find verse 6, Judges 10, 6, and as you're doing so, if you have an NIV spoiler alert as I have, you're going to notice that our scene that we're about to study features a new deliverer today, Jephthah. It's revealed by the fact that it's his name, if you see there, that serves as the section subtitle, Jephthah. And as we'll see in a moment, Jephthah's a Gileadite, like Jair. Uh, it's a fact that provides, I believe, some continuity to our judge's story, as do his similarities and stark contrasts to both Gideon and Abimelech who preceded him. And we're going to point those out in time. But right now, I'd like us to dive into our text for this morning. It's found in Judges chapter 10, and I'll be reading from verse 6. So Judges 10, 6, our author writes, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me. And served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. And let's stop here church. And let's make sure we don't miss our first point for this morning. Which is Yahweh's wrath. Yahweh's wrath. Which unless you were daydreaming or doodling. I would imagine that came through clear as a bell didn't it. Because our author goes to great lengths. To make sure we do not miss it. Now, two weeks ago, if you were with us, you may recall how we noted in Abimelech's story the fact of his abominable actions and how they revealed Israel's new national low, meaning as a country of sorts, under his leadership, Israel had reached new heights or depths, depending on which direction you'd like to go, of wickedness resulting from the people's continued rejection of Yahweh, his, his word, his will, and his ways. And with Abimelech, Israel apparently had turned a blind eye to fratricide and mass murder. And yet, as we saw together last week, God once again saved them through Tola. Glorious display of God's grace and how his grace follows failure. And after Tola's rule, we noted the continued peace that God had given to his people under Jair, which we also pointed out showed our tendency to sin, as revealed by Jair's many sons and their lavish rides. However, when we concluded our time together last week, I doubt any of us would have expected 
what we've just read. Now, granted, the opening formula there is one that we've encountered from as early as, as chapter 3 and verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but what follows, not so much. What our author provides us in the second half of verse 6 is what one commentator describes as the most elaborate description of Israelite apostasy in the book. The intensity of, of Israel's wickedness is captured here by the sevenfold catalog of the pagan idols that the people are worshiping. Previously, we've seen Israel prostrate themselves before Baal and, and Asherah, but now we discover that they've added the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Philistia, and the Ammonites to their perverse pagan pantheon. And church, in this list of seven Canaanite deities, I believe there is surely a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, where there Moses relaying God's commands to his people prior to their entering the promised land declared, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, and they were given a list, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven, seven nations, Moses continues, larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, he says, and you have defeated them, then you must, wait for it, destroy them. How? Totally. Totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. So what? Well, Moses continued, the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Seven nations God promised to drive out and ordered Israel to destroy. Now, seven generations later, by my count, we discover that Israel not only failed to drive out Canaan's inhabitants, but they are in fact worshiping the very gods they were called to destroy. And not just a few of them, all of them simultaneously. Church, further, what makes this apostasy even more complete is that there could be gradations to apostasy. It's the fact that Israel no longer served the Lord because they had intentionally forsaken him. You notice how the sentence following the deity's name states, because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him. In other words, it wasn't like Israel simply went Hindu and decided to welcome and worship anything and everything. They, they didn't suddenly become pantheists and recognize every god as fair game and incorporate into their worship practices these new deities. No. They intentionally rejected Yahweh. They purposefully turned their backs on the one true living speaking God of the universe and instead bowed before the many dead wood, lifeless stone images formed from the earth. And church, when we read these verses today, far removed from when they occurred, I believe we often regard Israel as some perverse and primitive people who, unlike us, simply couldn't control themselves because they just didn't know enough. Now, we who live on this side of the Enlightenment, we would never 
chase after idols or intentionally turn our backs on God and then chase after idols, would we? I mean, we're smarter than that. We, we know we have laptops, smartphones, some of us, iPads. We, we know that idols aren't real, right? But what do our actions reveal? Church? If we were to sit down and document all that we do in a given day, or to use the old analogy, would we find enough evidence in our lives to be convicted of being Christ followers? Or, or would we be quickly tossed in jail for a host of other things? Clear allegiance to, say, a particular TV show or a, a Facebook friend or, or to a job, even our family. Because you remember here how our author described Israel's apostasy. He uses the phrase, they no longer served. Served the Lord. The verb to serve, it covers a great deal more activity than we often associate with faith, doesn't it? Now we often evaluate Christian commitment exclusively by reference to the act of corporate worship. Do you serve the Lord? Or do you simply spend an hour a week in religious activity? Is your life devoted to the living God of the Bible? And if so, how? And if not, what or, or whom do you serve? And church, I, I believe that there are many men and women in our nation, churches across our nation, who have abandoned the Lord, but they still drag themselves to church once a week out of superstitious ritual. I believe there's even more who, who formerly belonged to churches, but who today have abandoned the Lord and turned to the worship of idols, and idols of money, of, of pleasure and popularity. And you may even know some who used to belong to the church for a time, and maybe they even helped teach Sunday school and went on mission trips, but now they worship at the beach in the summertime or the travel ball fields in the fall. And the idols, while those idols after which or before which they bow, they might not strike us as scary. In fact, we may even see some of them as healthy. Some of them, at least. Church, don't be deceived. They are still idols, and our worship of them generates the same reaction from the Lord today as it did in Israel's. Because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, our author writes verse 7, Yahweh became angry with them. As, as with Israel's disobedience, which we noted wasn't new, but sadly had reached new depths. Now we see from our author that Yahweh's response had also reached an all-time high. As one commentator observes, the description of Yahweh's response to Israel's spiritual defection confirms, it would seem, our suggestion that in the narrator's mind, the nation's canonization is coming to a climax. Because notice how our text informs us that Yahweh's anger motivated his response of selling them. This is the first time since Othniel was judged that we're informed of God's anger as the motivation for his judgment. Second, this is the first time, period, in which God sells his people into the hands of two different nations, the Philistines and the Ammonites. Sure, previously God has given Israel over to the Arameans, to the Moabites, to the Philistines, Canaanites, to the Midianites, but this is the first time that God has placed his people under the power of two foreign oppressors simultaneously. And then third, our author introduces two new verbs here to describe the action of Israel's enemies. In verse 8, we're told that the Philistines and the Ammonites shattered and what? Crushed. Shattered and crushed Israel. Now, the first term 
is used in only one other place in the entire Old Testament. That's in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 6 where Moses and Miriam sang a song of how the Lord's right hand was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, they sang, shattered the enemy where the enemy there would have been Pharaoh. And that second verb to crush is more common, but it, interestingly enough, only appears in Judges in one other place, which ironically we studied several weeks ago. Chapter 9, verse 53, where it captures the effect there of a millstone on a certain man's noggin. Judges 9.53, our NIV translates this term as cracked, as in a millstone cracked Abimelech's skull. And church, the point that I believe we need to see here together is not how God grew angrier, so to speak, with Israel, displaying his displeasure commensurate with their disobedience, but rather the truth that their sin, Israel's sin, led to his righteous wrath, which in turn resulted in Israel's great distress. And church, despite teaching and preaching in our nation to the contrary, this is always only God's response to sin. As a holy God, perfect in all his ways, God cannot tolerate sin. Anything that we do, we feel or that composes who we are in our very essence, that fails to conform to God's moral law, is sin. And the offense of that failure is directly related to the standing of the one offended. In other words, sin is a big deal. Why? Because God's a big deal. <laughs> the biggest. As the infinitely good, eternally wise God of the universe. Sin's offense is infinite. It isn't like a simple slap on the cheek of a sibling. Or even a parent. Or, or even your president, each of which would reflect increasing level of insult. Instead, sin is such that God has committed the unlimited resources of heaven to its eternal destruction as described for us in John's revelation. Friends, sin is the, the issue. And tragically, the church has managed to marginalize it by its varied and erroneous theories of the atonement, of what Christ's work on the cross accomplished. In other words, by viewing Christ's work for his people on the cross as simply the culmination of his life lived as a moral example, moral exemplar, whereby we now are called to be willing to demonstrate the same love for others that Christ displayed. The offense of sin is downplayed in favor of Christ's display of obedience to the Father's will. And similarly, in the Christus Victus, theory, Christ is victorious, that views Christ's death as simply ransoming people from Satan. And it fails to address the personal nature of sin and its offense. And in both of these attempts, among others, to understand Christ's crucifixion and the resurrection, the role played by our sin isn't ignored, per se, but neither is it given center stage as the cause for our glorious Savior's suffering. And yet, church, this is what the scriptures teach. They declare in Hebrews 9.26, the writer described Christ's death as a sacrifice. As he declares, he, that's Christ, appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away what? Sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. The Apostle John, in his first letter, chapter 4 and verse 10, wrote this of this sacrifice. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a what? Atoning sacrifice or propitiation of what sin 
It's an act by which Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, 19. This is the act by which Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So sin's a huge deal because it required the death of God's only son to save us from it. Have you acknowledged your sin? And we're all sinners. The Apostle Paul makes clear Romans 3.23, all have sinned, and therefore we all face the punishment of death. It's our wage, as he writes later in chapter 6, verse 23. We've earned it. As sinners, we all, like Israel, face God's unrelenting, unremitting antagonism to evil, his wrath. We're all sinners. The only question today is, are you a forgiven sinner? Israel sinned again, and God was angry. And so as we've seen before, he allowed them to be oppressed for 18 years, we're told. Israel was harassed on all sides, and they were in great distress. So then in verse 10, we hear that familiar cry, cry for help. Only this time it appears, it appears sincere, because you notice how unlike past cries, this one's both general and specific. The people begin with their general apology, we've sinned, we've sinned against you, to which they add the specific explication forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And I find this new addition particularly telling because it includes this personal reference to Yahweh as our God. And by admitting Yahweh is their God, I believe that, that Israel was, they were, that they were serving the Baals. I believe that it would appear that Israel's confessing their violation of that first principle of covenant relationship that was given to them back in Exodus 20 verse 3. And then reiterated, Deuteronomy 5, 7, that was to have no other gods but Yahweh. And I said it would appear because we've noted the emptiness that's marked Israel's cries before. And further, this appeal doesn't explicitly express the desire for forgiveness, does it? Or include a plea for grace. And so at this point in the story, despite the promising developments, it's, it remains to be seen whether these sentiments reflect authentic conviction or simply the people's continued desire to manipulate God and direct him to hopefully alleviate their painful circumstances. In church, I would imagine this morning that Israel's confession is one with which we can all relate. Now granted, Baal is unlikely to have been the God before whom we bowed, but we've all been caught worshiping things other than God. And in those moments of divine conviction and discipline, which, by the way, the author of Hebrews reminds us are evidences that we are God's children, we all tend to cry out, don't we? Now, when I was growing up, if you disobeyed mom or dad, you were disciplined. Cause, effect. Usually, being boys, a gentle rebuke was insufficient to instill memorable correction. And so consistent with the scriptures, the rod was effectively employed to aid our easily distracted minds in this process of remembering right behavior. Now, I don't recall requiring such training too regularly. You can run that past mom and dad later if you'd like. But on the odd occasion that I did, I do remember the, the dread that I felt when told to go place my hands on the bed, the phrase denoting one's upcoming encounter with the rod of discipline. And those words were always ominous. And they often stopped whatever disrespectful, disobedient behavior was taking place in its tracks. Though, as I recall, once spoken, go put your hands on the bed, meant there is no going back. Though even 
Even though I'd apologized profusely, I'd still be made to bravely make my way to my room. Paul, I, I don't know that he was ever spanked. That boy was perfect. However, James, church, when I think of the judge's account of Israel crying out, my brother James is who comes to my mind because the moment that man heard mom, dad pass sentence, he would begin crying out, wailing. I mean, literally, this was come apart at the seams, weeping. You'd have thought that he'd already experienced the act of discipline itself as he pitifully made his way to his room, pleading the entire way for grace. It was quite the spectacle. And to an outsider, to an outsider, it appeared as authentic as crab cakes from Deal Island. And yet, (laughs) and yet, on at least one occasion, I remember mom trying her best to discipline that boy, all the while listening to this man's shrill shrieks when all of a sudden his tone would change. And what had been this cry would somehow morph into a chuckle as it seemed James realized mom's gentle efforts, you know, as sincere as they were, could not possibly be believed to be the source, the cause of his apparent agony. And in the moments that would then follow the disingenuous nature of his conviction and cries would only become clearer because his weeping would genuinely turn into laughter, which, as you can imagine, did not sit well with mom and would usually be responded to with the concern, well, wait till your father gets home, which would then restore, restore genuine conviction, it appeared. But the point is, church, it didn't matter what was said, how it was expressed with words. The authentication of that apology was given by the actions. So what actions or what do your actions reveal regarding your attitude toward God's discipline? Are we merely relieved when our circumstances change? Or are we genuinely convicted of our offense against the holy God of the universe? Israel cried out. In verse 11, we read that the Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. As the God who knows all, according to 1 John 3.20, and who Jeremiah the prophet says can see people's secret intentions, Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord saw right through Israel's facade. He'd heard this song before. He'd seen the dance. The Lord, he he knew rather than then succumbing to his people's manipulation, he states, I will no longer save you. Go cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Can you imagine how Israel must have felt at that point? Their flawed theology had led them to believe that God existed to serve them. And in their minds, they they believed that they were special, which is why God had chosen them. And church, as wonky as that sounds, I believe that there are many, tragically, in the church today who share Israel's error. We have entire sects within evangelicalism who promote what one pastor theologian, I believe, rightly calls bomb shelter religion. And that, that's religion that teaches that well, God will help you in your time of need because he's incredibly naive. He's hopelessly soft like a great-grandfather in the sky. He, he's like this warm vending machine. who All you got to do is put a couple tokens of repentance into it, and 
out will spit that relief that you currently crave. And in this deeply flawed reasoning, religion is nothing but a game. It's a great game where all you need to know is a few rules to succeed. And Yahweh, well, he's a great God if you happen to need him and you want to use him, but life doesn't revolve around him. What's central to existence, to flourishing, is your happiness and fulfillment in this life and the next. Does that sound familiar? Church, we've got to be so careful that we don't allow these lies to infiltrate our minds because nothing could be further from the truth. As Israel found out when God rejected his people's confession and he closed his ears to their cry for help. It's in his response, it's like God said finally, well, you've picked your gods. You go to them with your problems. See if they help you. See if they save you. But don't come, don't come crying to me in one of your repentance dramas. You know, at this point, having experienced God's mercy time and time again, Israel faced with the very real threat of Yahweh shaking off the dust in his dealings with his people. It's the same principle I believe we see expressed when Jesus sent out his disciples in Matthew 10. And church, as men and women, richly blessed of God as Israel, recipients of his mercy, I believe we've got to be so aware of our tendency to these same grace gifts, to despise them as did Israel. When, when we enjoy all that we have, which is ours only because of God's lavish giving, and we believe that in some way we've merited it, I believe we run the risk of reflecting Israel's attitude here. They weren't special, and therefore God chose them. They were special because God chose them. And that same holds true for you and me. Israel sinned. They faced Yahweh's wrath as he directed them to seek their help from their idols. And now we get to verse 15. So would you look back with me to our text there in verse 15 where our author continues. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we've sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So we noted Yahweh's wrath. Church, here I believe we see Yahweh's compassion. The two aspects of our God as we talked about with our children. And since in this point, I want to first give a word of warning. Because I believe we need to be so careful that we don't view Israel's actions here as influencing Yahweh's response. And by that I mean prior to Yahweh's harsh words given us in verse 14, Israel's cries had been disingenuous. We've pointed that out. But now... In verse 15, it seems they became serious. They really repented. And so Yahweh relented. And if we look at it in this light, then it would seem as if Israel's removal of their foreign gods is what demonstrated their sincerity. And it was this action that then moved Yahweh's heart. But church, I don't think that this is a correct reading of this text at all for two reasons. First, first in Israel's past cryings out, such as those that Yahweh references, verse 12, there's no textual indication that they did not include the putting away of all false gods. Because you notice what Yahweh's concern is there. Verse 13, God's complaint isn't that Israel failed to fully destroy their idols. But his complaint is the fact that after he delivered them, they once again abandoned him and they went back to their idols. So it is altogether possible that in their past repenting, Israel had destroyed their false gods completely. 
and begun to follow Yahweh again. Second reason that I believe or I don't believe these texts teach Israel's repentance motivated Yahweh's response is because verse 16 doesn't tie God's compassion to Israel's confession, does it? But to her suffering. Our author says, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. It would seem to me that God's heart was mercifully moved by the sight of Israel's suffering and not dutifully not dutifully manipulated by the authenticity of their acts of repentance. And church, this is the truth that I believe our author desired to capture here. How our hope as men and women does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. Let me say that again. Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. Because here's one of the great, great mysteries of the gospel, of how a holy, transcendent God who needs nothing, depends on no one but himself, so set his affections on those he'd fashioned in his image that he would plan from before creation even occurred to come and rescue them from sin. And it was only he who could save them. Why? Because only he could bear the wrath they'd incurred, which ironically is his wrath, and, and deliver them once and for all. It says, says one pastor notes, this is why we have the seeming tension that we feel between judgment and grace, don't we, in the scriptures. And it's a tension that's not merely in the text of the scriptures themselves, but it's also in the very character of God himself. Because he is the God whose holiness demands he judges people, right? And yet it's his heart that moves him to show grace and to spare his people. Church is broken people. We are so prone to view our existence through the lens of of self, from which we conclude that we're the main characters in this drama. You know, we're, we're central, and all that God does is He does, but He does so in response to our doings, be it damning or delivering. We dictate God's hand. And this might resonate with our sinful self-centeredness, but church, it also enslaves us to fear and to expectations that we cannot fulfill. Because if God's saving work depends on the sincerity of our repentance or our sincerity in repentance, then could we ever truly know that we're saved? How sincere do you need to be? How do we know? I mean, is it by our obedience? Because if it is, then what happens when we fail to obey and we once again do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Does this mean that we weren't sincere before and that now we've lost our salvation? Church, God's salvation is so great because it doesn't depend on our works. Now, does this mean that repentance is unimportant? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Joel 2, the prophet makes clear that repentance is a divine demand. But our hope is in God's grace, not our display of sorrow. And any benefit that we receive isn't coerced by our actions, but freely given by God's grace. In other words, repentance is a condition. 
but it's not a cause of God's saving work. So have you received God's grace in forgiveness or are you still banking on the sincerity of your repentance? Church, the beauty of the gospel is that it frees us. It frees us to love and to serve the Lord. Our efforts enslave us as we desperately try to earn and to retain that which we could never deserve. Would you receive God's great salvation today? Let's pray as we close. Father, you are a God whose salvation is so great. Lord, and in our brokenness, God, in our total depravity, we are so led to view ourselves as central. God, in that, that warped expression of our pride in rejection of you as God works itself so subtly into our understanding of how we are to live in relationship with you. Father, you have by grace justified us, declared us righteous, a gift that you extend, received by faith. Lord, we could not do anything to deserve this gift. And your word makes that abundantly clear. Father, and yet we so often confuse our responsibility as if we could in some way dictate, determine, force, merit, Lord, play a role in this grace work. God, and what that does is create in us uncertainty and fear. For if we could participate and play, then we could lose that which we've won. God, and the beauty of what we've seen today is how it was your people's suffering that caused your heart to stir and to extend grace. It wasn't the sincerity of their repentance, but rather your heart. It was your heart that led to grace being extended. Father, we thank you that you have so shown your grace to us that you sent your son died on a cross, three days later rose from the dead. God, that gospel hope you have called for us to proclaim so that men and women who hear it would find the life that they so desperately desire. Father, we can't find it in anything else. Lord, and if we work to accomplish it, we will discourage ourselves and find enslavement rather than freedom. Lord, your gospel frees us because your salvation is so great. We desire to follow and to obey. Lord, we thank you. And I pray this morning as we've heard these promises, if there are any who have not acknowledged their need of your grace confess their sin, believed in Jesus, God, that this day would be the day that you so, so graciously bring life. For you are faithful, God. Great is your faithfulness. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.